Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're honouring the women who made a remarkable contribution to the history of Dublin across all walks of life, but who were ignored for far too long. We're also going to be finding out about land surveying in Ireland from 1690 to 1830 and the formation of the Ordnance Survey of Ireland. Ireland. Now, if you want to uh, take part in our discussion, just send us an email, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. And to begin tonight's show, I'm delighted to be joined by Clodagh Finn, author and journalist, to talk to us about a very interesting new book called Her Keys to the City, Honouring the Women Who Made Dublin. It's a book that's published in hardback by Dublin City uh, Public Libraries. It's uh, co-authored with the former Lord Mayor of Dublin, Alison Gilliland. And to tell us all about it, I'm delighted to welcome Clodagh to the show. Clodagh, you're very welcome. Thank you very much, Patrick. It's a fascinating genesis behind this project because it was this idea that up until June 2022, only, I think it's only five women had been awarded the Freedom of the City of Dublin and one was removed. Uh, So it was the fact that uh, given that over 80 people had been given the Freedom of the City since the 19th century, women had not been represented, women had been invisible. So you have four women and uh, 79 men. So that's a bit of an imbalance. And the Lord Mayor, um, the former Lord Mayor, Alison Gilliland, had really wanted to address that when she took office. One of her uh, stated aims was to increase the visibility of women. And initially, she wanted to actually retrospectively award 79 women the freedom of the city. But you have to be alive to defend the city in order to get the award. So she thought, how will we honour the women who went before us, who did incredible work since the award was first inaugurated in 1879? And that's how the idea for the book was born. So then was the great question, well, who should be in it? So we started to compile a list and with help from historian uh, Mary Muldowney and Maeve Catherley, also um, a fellow journalist and history graduate, Rowena Walsh, we made a list. But then we said we should put this out to the public. So we did a public consultation in February to try and make a list of 80 women who, while we couldn't award them the freedom of the city, this book is like giving them a symbolic keys to the city. It's saying these women did something incredible for the city and we're honouring them in that way. It's brilliant and we'll talk about some of these women because some brilliant people included in the book. Let's just go back to those who who were honoured and received the freedom because since June, I think, Alison, when she was Lord Mayor, made sure that uh, three more were added to the list, Kelly Harrington, uh, Alva Smith and Mary Aiken, uh, bringing the numbers up. Let's talk about the other ones, though. It was Mother Teresa, Maureen Potter... Michelle Obama, and I think the first one was a suffragist uh, from uh, the 1910s. It did very well. It started off, it was um, Stanthurst. Mary Stanthurst got the award, I think, in 1889. And, uh, you know, it kind of started off very well. And then I think another 70 years passed before the next woman was awarded um, the freedom of the city. Uh, The Emperor Quito and his wife, his wife, was awarded the freedom of the city as well. And in the ceremony, it was just noticed in the minutes that he spoke, but she didn't. Um, Michelle Obama has the freedom of the city as well, but she has yet to sign the role of honour. So it's not technically, she doesn't have it yet. They have to revisit Dublin and come and pick up the award. You have Mother Teresa and you have Maureen Potter, who is the only Irish woman to get the freedom of the city. And then the controversial one is the one that had to be removed. 
That is, that's right. Aung San Suu Kyi um, got it and then she was removed and Bob Geldof was removed at the same time because he said he didn't want an award that she had. So I suppose that goes to show that if you get the freedom of the city for work you have done, you also have to uphold the values and continue to defend, if you like, the principles of the freedom of the city. And Alison Gilliland, when she was awarding the freedom of the city, which entitles you to um, graze your sheep in St. Stephen's Green, but um, she said, you're actually supposed to defend the city. And that's why she chose the three women um, in June. I suppose an Olympian boxer would be a great person to defend the city. But Alison Gilliland said the reason she was chosen as well as for her athletic career was because she was such a strong community worker. And is there any better way to keep a city together than work in the community? And likewise, Alva Smith was chosen because she defended women's rights. And cyber psychologist Professor Mary Aiken was chosen because she keeps us safe from the encroaching dangers of social media. So, you know, there's some of the reasons that those women in the present were chosen. And I suppose that too has informed our decision to pick women from the past. And what the list shows and what the biographies show is that it wasn't as if there weren't women who who should have been honoured with the freedom of the city of Dublin, that there were uh, remarkable women who had extraordinary careers, who made a major contribution to Irish society, to politics, to the revolutionary movement, to the suffrage movement, to the arts, so that there were people uh, throughout that period, they just hadn't got that recognition. Exactly. In fact, We could do a volume two and a volume three, even a volume four of all the women um, who contributed to the building of the city and the country over the last hundred years. You know, and I think that's a recurrent theme in recent times that the contribution of women has been under the radar or it has been ignored or it has been dismissed in some way. I think I'm glad to one of the one of the women in the book is Margaret McCurtain, the pioneering historian. And I suppose she started to really change the way we looked at history in the 1970s when she was a lecturer in UCD. And she said, why don't we introduce the study of suffrage, for example? And uh, they said, no, no, we won't do that. And I was very interested to see that in 1964, when she wanted to do a course in the Counter-Reformation, Archbishop John Charles McQuaid wanted to see her notes. And she said no. So the courage that that took, um, in any case, when Arlene House published her first history book in 1978, they were told there is no market for uh, women's history. And after it sold 10,000 copies, they had to revise that um, view. So I think since then, there has been a tenacious chipping away um, of the prejudice in history and in politics, I suppose, where we've started to acknowledge that women do indeed hold up half the sky. And it's, it's a revelation and it's a continuing revelation, I think. And some of the women in this book really show um, how long that has been going on. And I just want to add my own tribute to Margaret yes. McCurtain, who yes. uh, was, yeah, as you say, a really brilliant and inspirational historian. And I know so many of the, the generations of historians she taught went on to be inspired by her work and continue on that work. And I'm thinking of people like Dermot Ferreter and so on that, mm-hmm. you know, always acknowledge that, that, that great debt to her. Yeah, and you have many people. And there's a kind of a delicious irony in it now. They have the Margaret McCurtain Scholarship in Women's History at UCD, the very university that did not accept her her courses in the beginning, you know, and she, she was a social reformer and she worked on so many levels. That's one of the things you find when you start to study a person, they might be known for one particular thing. But when you start to look at their lives, they often are involved in so many different areas and contribute so much to society. Um, let me take an example of Anna Maria Haslam, who would be best known, perhaps, as a campaigner for women's suffrage. 
But she was stuck in every movement going in the 19th century. She was in the Rat Minds Literary Society. She was in the Fresh Air Society. The Fresh Air Society was a society that brought children from the city out to the country for a day by the sea or a day in the fields. Um, she was a real social um, reformer as well, as well as being involved in the uh, fight for, for suffrage. And I, even reading about that, I thought that I bet you people in her time thought that she was a complete crackpot, the fact that she was supporting uh, this idea of fresh air. But of course, now we know so much about air pollution and about the benefits of fresh air that something that probably made her look like 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 she was some eccentric in the 19th century was something that now would be seen as advanced enlightened thinking. Absolutely. And I'm sure her husband was seen as a crackpot as well because he supported women's suffrage, which was very much um, an unusual position in the day. But one of the themes that emerged while we were researching this book is that the women who were successful had kind of access to two things. One was access to education. And the other was in their own families, they had women who provided inspiration. I mean, Anna Haslam was born in 1829 and she was one of 17 children. Can you imagine? But if you look at her mother's life, her mother was Jane Fisher in Yall. And even though she had 17 children, she was very active in the temperance movement. She was active in famine relief in Yall in the 1840s. And she also won a prize from the Quakers for her anti-slavery movement. So you can see where a young Anna got these ideas. And I was fascinated, actually, to read in Freeman's journal in the obituary. It said that Anna was also a really enthusiastic reader. And when she was a girl, she read Mariah Edgeworth, the novelist and essayist, and also read Harriet Martineau, who who would be considered as the UK's first sociologist. So there she was as a young woman getting these ideas and being shaped by them and then seeing what needed to be done around her and um, taking action. And it's it's an important year for her because the centenary of her death falls next month. Um, I think on the 28th of November, I've seen different dates for her death. And I hope that we remember her. Um, she's remembered in St. Stephen's Green. There's um, a commemorative bench there, but also maybe in Yall, where her contribution might have passed a little bit below the radar. And extraordinary the way in 1918, when uh, women over 30 had the right to vote in that election. She was there at the age of 89 uh, at the polling booths and encouraging people to vote and a symbol of all that had been achieved. Absolutely. And the interesting thing was she was a suffragist as opposed to a suffragette. She opposed all kinds of violence and she would have been very much against what she saw as extreme, you know, women breaking windows, um, campaigning for votes. And actually, she called them vociferous vixens at one stage in one of the letters. But she was universally admired by radicals and moderates alike. And they all actually, you know, in a procession, kind of celebrated by bringing her to the polling booth in the, on that momentous day in 1918. And she actually lived to see the full vote um, in 1922. So at least she got to see that her work had borne fruit, if you like. And another interesting figure and fascinating figure is Kathleen Clark. Uh, we, we know her, I suppose, only vaguely as the widow of Tom Clark, who was executed after the 1916 Rising, but someone who had a, a, a very important and significant career in her own right. She certainly did. And I mean, she started very early as an 18 year old. She was a businesswoman. You know, she was kind of encouraged to join the family had a bakery in Limerick, but she followed her mother's path and became a seamstress and had her own business and then went on to join a firm in Limerick. And the family was very much, you know, a Fenian Republic family. So she would have heard about Thomas Clark. But it's quite interesting when she actually met him, she thought that she was keenly disappointed at their first encounter. There's a note in her own memoir um, because she saw Clark. He was 20 years her senior and he was newly released from jail. So he was emaciated and stooped and he showed none of the heroic qualities she had expected. 
Um, I just thought that was an interesting and kind of very honest insight from her. But clearly their relationship grew. And one thing I suppose that that's not really realised is the two of them went off to America and they were married in New York in 1901 and they ran an ice cream shop in Brooklyn and later a market garden at Long Island. And when they came back to Dublin, they were in business together as tobacconists. So that was all going alongside, you know, their political career. And then I think what is very well known is that um, she knew about the rising, but Thomas Clark insisted she would not play an active role because he wanted her to take on the movement um, after he was executed, as it turned out. And I think that, you know, it was... There was a great tribute paid by historian Lindsay Erner Byrne um, early in the year to the widows of 1916. They were the women that built Ireland. And in that documentary, Lindsay recalls that actually Kathleen was pregnant with her fourth child at that time and she had a miscarriage. So here she was trying to pick up the pieces with three small children um, and to go on. It, it must have been extraordinarily difficult. And that's all before she even started. She became the first mayor in female mayor in 1939. Um, interestingly, she refused to wear the chain of office because William of Orange was on it. And she said, I'm not wearing that. And she cast out all the portraits in the mansion house. And um, how lovely that on the 50th anniversary of her death, there is now a portrait of Kathleen Clark um, being restored to the mansion house. So I think that's that's very fitting. And she's someone who played a significant role during the War of Independence. She took a strong stand on the treaty and during the Civil War and then involved in politics over those decades ahead, but also getting involved in things like the founding of the Irish Red Cross while she was Lord Mayor and really playing this really uh, important role on causes that she was so passionate about. She really was. And I think she played a very important role in in improving the lives of women and children. And as we're looking at the Mansion House in 1939, I want to draw your attention to another woman who was there in the Mansion House at that time. And she never, her name never appears in the history book. Her name is Mary O'Sullivan. And she was secretary to Dublin's Lord Mayors from 1901 1942. Um, She would have been there during Kathleen Clark's tenure, but she saw from the very beginning the Mansion House, um, the first meetings of the Dáil were in the Mansion House, and she would have, she was in charge of the special correspondence delivered to the Mansion House for ministers and the members of the Dáil and passing it on to trusted members. There was danger involved at that time because there were many raids. Um, She was a very discreet woman, um, so unfortunately doesn't leave a memoir and there's no picture of her. But she was she was charged with um, saying who can come into the, the mansion house. And there's a fantastic story about um, the Lord Mayor of Cork, Donal O'Callaghan, arrived and she didn't like the look of him and she didn't let him in. And he turned around to go and the Lord Mayor of Dublin, Lawrence O'Neill, saw him and admitted entry to him. And what's very interesting as well, Patrick, is that the current secretary to the Lord Mayors of Dublin, Fauncia Gibson, wrote that piece. And it offers a little uh, peephole into a period of history and the women behind the scenes that we never see. And why do you think Kathleen Clark then was, in a way, ignored for so long, given that she had such a an active role in so many parts of Irish history over such a long period that she should have received that recognition? Well, I suppose she was very well known in her day. And when she died in September 1972, she was given a state funeral and was buried in Dean's Grange Cemetery. Flags in the city flew at half-mast. I think we forgot in the intervening years. Um, My own theory is that the stories need to be told and retold. And I think history um, was told, history was seen as the story of men, the story of Parliament, the story of battles, and it was told by men. So women were relegated to the footnotes, indeed, if they appeared at all. 
Um, one example of that, which is very interesting, um, I saw the the, um, the first Earl of Cork and Roy Foster says in a footnote, actually, that um, this is Richard Boyle, that he had very interesting sons. Um, one of them is Robert Boyle, who's very well known for Boyle's Law. He didn't mention at all his daughters. And it's only in recent years that now you have a biography of his daughters, including Lady Ramallah, who was actually more famous than um, Robert Boyle in her day. So it just fell out of favour. And I, I kind of see it as a, a slick of testosterone, you know, was passed over all the pages of history. And it's only in recent times we said, hold on a minute. There's another story here that needs a telling. Well, we are talking about these women tonight and making sure that they get the recognition uh, that they deserve. Some brilliant stories in this new book, Her Keys to the City, Honouring the Women Who Made Dublin. And I'll be continuing my conversation with Clodagh Finn right after this break. Talking History with Patrick Gagan on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at the women who made Dublin uh, some extraordinary lives and also tease out and explore why they have been neglected for so long. I'm delighted to be rejoined by Clodagh Finn, the author and journalist who's the co-author of Her Keys to the City, Honouring the Women Who Made Dublin. Now, Clodagh, we've been talking about some of these these figures who played significant roles during the revolutionary period, people like Kathleen Clark, but there are also others like Kathleen Lynn who had this very interesting career both in terms of politics but also in terms of medicine. Yes, and I think Kathleen Lynn has been remembered in recent years. There is a campaign to name the new children's hospital after her. And when you read about her pioneering work, founding St. Olsen's Hospital, it seems like a very good fit. Um, I think we know about her political career, but she really was a a pioneer of medicine. And with um, Madeleine French Mullen, her lifetime partner in work and in life, they set up um, St. Olsen's with just £70 and two sleeping costs. And they wanted to reach out to the inner city poor um, because they wanted particularly to reach out to mothers and infants. And what was different about this hospital was it was exclusively run by women and they were encouraged to be innovative and to seek out solutions to ongoing problems, including the huge problem of TB, which claimed so many lives um, in the city and in the in the country. Indeed, one of the they were the the hospital that rolled out the BCG vaccine program against TB. And Dr. Dorothy Stopford Price was one of the doctors, and she actually learned German so that she could go abroad and study um, what doctors were doing on the continent and bring that back to Dublin. Um, herself. Kathleen Lynn. Um, one of the interesting things about her with TB, there was again, we talked about the Fresh Air Society. There was an emphasis on fresh air and getting fresh air into the lungs. And she asked architect Michael Scott to um, design a balcony for her. And she slept on the balcony for a lot of the year. So I thought that was quite, showed quite her mettle, you know. And like that, we talked about they were women. There's a really poignant picture of Dr. Kathleen Lynn, which was given to us with kind permission of the Royal College of Physicians in Ireland. And she is holding and cuddling three very malnourished babies. And she was one of the first women to say, you know, kissing and cuddling children is, is, an, is as important as feeding and changing. And that's a theme you see Dr. Delia Mockler taking up in the National Maternity Hospital. She was one of the first assistant masters and she ran prenatal courses. She involved fathers and she said, you know, we have to show children affection. So these were women also included in this, I'll have to mention as well, is Dr. Ella Webb. She was involved in St. Olson's and she went on to set up the Sunshine, the Children's Sunshine Home. And she was one of the first to recognise that UV light was beneficial in the treatment of rickets. So these are pioneering women pushing the boundaries of medicine and also making it available to people. They provided their services free. 
Clodagh, it's also fascinating how the sexuality of these women were uh, submerged and hidden and that even though there was in some cases quite a lot of evidence of them living with someone and in, in some cases being buried alongside them, people just preferred to interpret it in different ways and say, no, they were just very good friends. And in a way, I suppose that's a good thing because they accepted it. You know, they just they just kind of said it's like that famous quote about Michal um, MacLeamor. You know, when his when his partner died, Hilton Edward, that people said, "I'm sorry for your trouble." They realised the depth of this relationship, and there are many actually. You have Kathleen Lynn and, and um, Madeleine French Mullen. You also have Louis Bennett, um, who was trade union leader, and her lifelong partner in work and life as well was Helen Shenovics, and. Um, people seem to accept it by ignoring it. Yeah. So I don't know whether that that was a good thing or a bad thing, but they they lived freely is what is what I mean. I look at that as, as a very positive thing, and it's really positive now to show that those same sex relationships have been with us for so long, and it's such a, a normal part of society. And there's some lovely, I think. Um, Kathleen Lynn has a lovely entry in her diary, you know, it says Saw M and she, she's referring to Madeleine French Mullen and the, the next line says, you know, everything will be all right now. You can see the love that these women and the respect they had for each other. And I think that's a beautiful thing to look back on and say it was ever thus. There also seems to be a, a sense that uh these these women were disillusioned with the new state that was created after independence, that they wanted to see more radical social reform. They they were unhappy with some of the turns that the that the country took. Very much so. And you see that in particular with the nineteen thirty seven constitution. The radicals and on you know, the and moderates alike spoke out against it. And you had Kathleen Clark, Hannah Sheehy, Skeffington, and people who were not political, like Professor Mary Hayden, who was one of the first professors of history, say, this cannot go. You are relegating women back into the home. Um, They set up an organisation to fight it, which ultimately wasn't successful. But you see, in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, women coming together to fight against inequality. They fought for equal pay. You know, somebody like um, Maureen O'Carroll, who's Brendan O'Carroll's um, mother um, at the time. She was a Labour TD. Um, and you can actually see where Brendan gets his wit, because at one stage she was asked, what would you say to women who are trying to be as good as men? And she said, oh, well, they, I think they lack ambition. But if you see her in the doll, she is fighting for um, access for female guardy. And it's very interesting to look at the debates in the doll around that time. They are so full of uh, misogyny and misunderstanding. For example, one TD stands up in the 50 and says, I think women would actually make good guardy because they're used to holding rolling pins. So they'd be good at holding the baton. And I suppose that was one of the better comments at the time. So um, right from the very beginning, um, you see women are dissatisfied with the structure of the state, the, the constitution. And then they see, say, if you if you go to the 40s, how the difficulties in society impacts women in particular. I'm thinking of Hilda Tweedy. She went to see Maribone Lane, a play in the gate in 1941, and it depicted the grinding poverty of the tenements. And that spurred her on to form with Andrew Sheehy Skeffington, the Irish Housewives Association. And if that sounded, uh, it might sound not very radical to us now, but it really was a radical organisation. And they um, fought for um, price controls, they fought for rationing. The resonance now as we as we face a cost of living crisis um, is striking. You know, they said the cost of fuel and the cost of food is particularly hitting the most vulnerable, which happen to be women. You see all through the decades, women looking at the society that has formed around them 
Um, they're disappointed that the promises of 1916 and 1920s that it would be an equal society have not materialised. And they took action to change that. Now, there's an awful lot more than just politics in the book. There are uh, some great writers honoured, Maeve Binchy, who you think should definitely have been given the uh, the freedom of the city of Dublin in her lifetime, and uh, a, a wonderful piece by the niece, uh, Sarah Binchy, who, right. who, who, I, who I knew myself in college. And, uh, and also... Uh, scientists and astronomers and we have uh, Margaret Lindsay Huggins who, who you know is a name that people won't be familiar with but in her lifetime did extraordinary work. This points to me the importance of visibility. She was a person that I suggested be included herself and the reason I know about her is that I get the dart at Salt Hill Monkstown and at 23 Longford Terrace there's a plaque that says Margaret Lindsay Huggins astronomer lived here in the mid-19th century. And I went, who was this Irish astronomer who lived here? And um, I started to look a little bit about her and her uh, profile is beautifully brought to light by my colleague Rowena Walsh. But she was um, really uh, a pioneer um, in the field of uh, astrophysics. And she was born in 1848 and her mother died when she was about seven. And that's when they came to Monkstown. And again, we have this idea that, the, you know, what you're introduced to as a young woman or a young girl uh, sticks. And her grandfather encouraged her to look at the stars when she was a child and he showed her the constellations. So by the time she was a young girl, she was studying sunspots with a telescope and she was experimenting with photography. And actually, it's very interesting. She was actually introduced to William Huggins, who was a very famous astronomer at the time, by an Irish telescope maker called Howard Grubb. Now, I didn't know that one of the foremost engineers in the field of telescopes was actually living in Dublin. And his office, if you like, is in Rath Mines and Observatory Lane is named after him. And it was he who introduced this couple. And the next time you're in Rath Mines, I don't know if she was buying a telescope. That story isn't told. But they were introduced and they went on to, to marry in 1875. She moved to London then and they did pioneering work that laid the foundations of astrophysics. And unusually, um, in her, as with women in her day, she was actually recognised. And her name appeared on articles they wrote together. And also when he was given an award by Queen Victoria, she was cited. She was called his gifted wife. And she moved in circles that included like Marie and Pierre Curie. And just on those, actually, and the talk, talk of visibility, that reminds me, I was in Paris and I saw a tribute to uh, Marie and Pierre Curie. And she was asked at one point, what is it like being married to a genius? And she said, I don't know, you should ask Pierre. <laughs> so I suppose she was well able to turn the tables. And we hope that this book will turn the tables just to balance the scales a little bit and allow these stories of the women who walked before us in Dublin to be told and appreciated. Oh, well, Clodagh, I think you've definitely succeeded in turning the tables with this book. You've mentioned how like, there could easily be a second and third uh, volume. I, I think you could also have volumes for the rest of the country as well, that there are stories all across the island that you could tell of, of women who made Ireland uh, in every single part of the island. That's one of the things that I really hope this book will do. First of all, that it will make people look at those plaques and look at the stories of the streets they walk down every day, not just in Dublin, but everywhere. And there have been plaques put up recently to women. For example, you've Janie McCarthy, who is a resistance worker in France, and in Killarney a plaque has been put up to honour her. Um, you have plaques, you know, Freedom of a City has been um, given to Vicky Phelan in Limerick. But I would love uh, local authorities and local groups and local his historical associations to tell the stories, the untold stories. This this is focused on women because their stories have not been told. I'm actually interested in all untold stories. Um, 
to date it has been mostly women, but there are many men out there that are, are that their contribution has been forgotten. And it would be a fantastic project. You know, here we are, 100 years of the state. Um, we're celebrating the decade of centenaries. I think it would be a, a great project for the next decade to look at all these stories of the women who made Ireland. Okay, well, Clodagh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show tonight. The book is called Her Keys to the City, Honouring the Women Who Made Dublin. It's published in hardback by Dublin City Public Libraries, written by Clodagh Finn and co-authored with Alison Gilliland, the former Lord Mayor of Dublin, and some wonderful contributions from writers and historians in the volume as well. Clodagh, thanks so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Well, we'll be back with more Talking History as we explore land surveying in Ireland from 1690 to 1830 and find out about the formation of the Ordnance Survey of Ireland. That's all coming up right after this break. Talking History with Patrick Gagan on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History, and I'm delighted to be joined by Finian O'Kiona, who's the author of a new book, Land Surveying in Ireland, 1690 to 1830, and it explores the profession of surveying and those who practised it between the era of repressive land forfeitures and the formation of the Ordnance Survey of Ireland. The book is published in hardback by Four Courts Press, and I'm delighted to welcome Finian to the show tonight. Finian, you're very welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's a fascinating story because we do have such a rich history of manuscripts, printed maps. It shows that there is a, such and there was such an interest in in mapping these things. There was such an interest in surveying the land, and I suppose there also were maybe more uh, cynical reasons for why they were so interested in it. But that's the real story here. It's a story of a profession, but really, it's a story of a relationship between people and place. And that is a relationship that we're still building on today. There's still this this connection between us, our civilization, our society and the landscape. So by looking at manuscript mapping and printed mapping from historic periods, we can try and understand the reasons and the logic of what information people wanted from the landscape at that time. And from a surveyor's point of view, how much were they willing to pay for a surveyor to get that information for them? And these are parts of the Irish story that I think were crucial to the development of our national identity. They were crucial to our economy, our society, our politics. So in a way, this is also the story of Ireland in this period. It is. It's about land. And land is such a huge issue even today. And looking back at our history for the past 500 years since the Tudor conquest, who controlled the land, controlled the country. They controlled the economic output of this country, they control the political landscape as well. And it is a, a, a tapestry of that. And when we talk about the 18th century, which is when this book is set, you're talking about the Protestant ascendancy and the estate landscape, that that remnant of the, the conquest of Ireland. And when you move then into the 19th century, which is after the book concludes, you people like Parnell, the Land League, it, it's this continuous story within Ireland, control of land and property. OK, well, maybe let's talk to us about the role of the land surveyor, uh, this specialist who was measuring and plotting Ireland's landscape, because you look at the careers of three prominent surveyors. So maybe we might start with Gabriel Stokes and what insights we get through the work that he was doing. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to approach it this way because... Following the career of an individual gives you a direct connection with the working world they're in. And Gabriel Stokes starts our story off in the the final decade or so of the 17th century. So we're talking about the long 18th century when we talk about the book. And he joined the profession of surveying when the last forfeiture, big forfeiture uh, surveys were taking place. That's the the, uh, seizure of land from rebel Gaelic and Catholic nobility and its redistribution to Protestant supporters of the Crown and government. And he was very lucky because when he was about 16, he got an apprenticeship with a gentleman called Joseph Moland. And Moland was uh, directly connected with some of the most prominent surveyors of that era who were pulled in to do this final forfeiture survey. So while those top guys were doing the forfeiture work for the government, it fell to people like Moland and his apprentice Stoke to fill the gap for their commercial clients. So they ended up landing a couple of very big superstar landlords, Archbishop William King, Trinity College Dublin, big landlords of the era. And 
this was an amazing start for a young man in this profession to be sucked right into the core of the profession. He was a bit of a brain box, was Gabriel Stokes. Some of your listeners may be familiar. The name might sound familiar from George Gabriel Stokes, who was his great-grandson, who's eminent scientist and mathematician of the 19th century. Uh, and Gabriel, who, who the surveyor, he reinvented himself in about the 1720s as one of the first mathematical instrument makers in the country. Now, this is a sort of a litmus test for the surveying profession because if you have enough surveyors working in the country, you have justification to start supportive trades like instrument making to help them and support them in their daily tasks. So he became one of the main figures of that based in Dublin. Um, uh, his, his shop sold to surveyors, but it also sold to engineers, architects. And while he was doing that, he would also still continue with estate surveys for his prominent clients. And it's interesting the way you mention clients because there is a huge customer demand and a consumer demand for these things. Absolutely. Regards uh, instrumentation, he sold everything from the most sophisticated instruments surveyors would need for uh, like the Surveyor General of Ireland. Thomas Burr was a huge fan of his and mentioned him in text that he absolutely uh, would recommend Stokes's work. So they sold uh, to engineers, as I said, to surveyors, instruments such as theodolites or circumferenters, surveyors' chains. But they also sold to the general public as well. Anybody who needed something that could measure rulers, um, you know, devices such as that, um, that we might think as kind of mundane. But at the time, they were, they were, these were not, these were specialist items. So you, you needed to go to a specialist to get them. So how does the job evolve then? Because you also look at Robert uh, Gibson and uh, uh, is there a change in the way the, the job is, is developing as the politics of Ireland changes? As that estate landscape begins to settle in the 18th century, there's no more wars, there's no more land to take because all the land that can be taken has pretty much been taken. We see surveying begin to mature. Surveyors make maps, they ascertain the location of property and they tell you the area of that property. Um, so for they became a, a, an essential part of that estate economic landscape. Geographic auditors is actually really how you want to think of them. And as the, uh, the estate landscape stabilised, you had more practitioners. Now, we're never talking hundreds of practitioners, but a few dozen. But there was bad practice as well. Um, surveyors could get into fights and arguments with each other. And that's where Gibson came in. Robert Gibson was a Dublin-based mathematician and land surveyor who started about the same time as Stokes at the turn of the century. And by 1750, he could see there were some big problems with surveyors fighting amongst themselves. And it was hurting clients. If a landlord had hired a surveyor and a tenant had hired a surveyor and the surveyors kept giving alternative results for the same area of a field, that could economically impact both sets of clients and it would hurt the, the wider industry as a collateral damage. So he said about writing uh, uh, the first general purpose manual for surveyors. This is best practice. This is how you should go about conducting yourself. And it was for sale both for land surveyors, but also the general public. So if you or I hired a surveyor, we could check their work. We could know what they're supposed to be doing or not supposed to be doing. If they show up with a rack of equipment and six people to assist them, we go, hang on a minute, this this mightn't be necessary just to survey my back garden or my little property here. You're 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 messing me about. And it it what it did was it Gibson's work was another step in the independence of the Irish profession from Britain. Up to that point. Irish surveyors had been dependent on British texts to understand how they should train their mathematics. But this was a big step on the way to look at Irish specific issues such as boundaries, the position of ditches, which is, you know, changes on different parts of the country. It was discussion on mathematics, instrumentation and interestingly, mapping rarely featured in this work. This is the most eminent text on Irish surveying of the 18th century and maps maybe make up two, three pages of a 300-page book because to a surveyor, the measurement is what matters. Mapping makes up the final 10% of your work. That's just the translation of your measurements into a geographic format. So you got to think of it like an iceberg. We all see the maps and works like Gibson allows us to understand the, the part of the iceberg below the water and that's why I feel his work is of huge importance in understanding this profession and also 
how estates were managed, how land was managed and how land was understood during that period. So bring us to the formation and the creation of the Ordnance Survey then in 1825. Why was it created and what was its, what was its intended function? The, the Ordnance Survey, I feel, is going to be discussed a lot more in historical circles because we're coming up to their bicentenary. So it's quite, quite interesting and quite exciting. It was originally set up to resolve uh, local tax issues. Strangely, we think of it as such a such a foundation of so much of what we do in the state today, from your elections to the services you can receive to your property. Um, but really, it was set up to resolve local tax issues. Taxes were charged on, it was called the county cess, C-E-S-S, and they were charged on a townland basis. Um, but the problem was land had been, some land had been improved, the, the basis that they were calculating this tax on was grossly out of date, like we're talking 150 years. So people were getting away with not paying their tax. And this was post-active union and Westminster wanted to know, hang on, this is not very efficient method of actually gathering tax. So a committee was set up under the uh, stewardship of Limerick MP Thomas Spring Rice and they wanted to investigate how can we resolve this tax issue. And they felt that the Ordnance Survey of Britain, which had started in the 1790s, would be a good model of creating a single mapping system for the entire country that was mathematically and scientifically correct, done by experts, and was homogenous. We're not talking county by county maps, and you have to put them together. This would be a one island series. And they interviewed uh, local uh, Irish civil engineers. They interviewed uh, British engineers as well, Thomas Colby, who, had, who was running the Ordnance Survey in Great Britain. And they came up eventually after many months of discussions that the British Board of Ordnance should be responsible for this project and start the great triangulation. And that it would take a, a good while to, to, to survey the entire country. Uh, but while they were at creating this townland map of Ireland, People like the Duke of Wellington wanted topographic information. This wasn't just an administrative map of polygons on, and, and on the Irish landscape. People like uh, Wellington wanted mountains, hills, rivers, so it would become a more general purpose map. Um, that committee started in 1824. They began their work shortly afterwards and the first maps appeared in 1833. And they're still with us today. And I think one of the key strengths that the Ordnance Survey had over previous map series was it was... Uh, repeatedly updated. Older map series would just be created, such as the Down Survey. It was a one-off, that was it. We're not going back to do it again. But the Ordnance Survey kept repeating, updating, reviewing, correcting. So it remained as relevant as it could. John Longfield is a fascinating figure and is involved with the Boggs Commission and he does some very important work as well. Yeah, John Longfield is the the third main character, for want of a better word, in in, in the book. And he sort of brings us to that era of the Ordnance Survey. Unlike Stokes or Gibson, who were, you could call them quasi-scientists and developers and researchers, Longfield was really a commercial practitioner. And he left us a vast record of estate maps that he created from his own office records. So we know a lot about what he was up to, who he worked for. And in 1809, he was hired by an organisation called the Boggs Commission. And they wanted to look at draining Ireland's boglands to improve that land, improve its agricultural uh, output to support the war at the time going on against Napoleon. It ran from 1809 to 1814. It produced beautiful maps of um, large parts of the west of Ireland and the Midlands. And it really was this apex of pre-ordnance survey mapping in Ireland. Again, it, because it was done by several engineers, there's difference in styles, there's difference in, in quality, it could be argued, but... Um, these beautiful maps that Longfield and others like him produced. Richard Griffiths, who became very um, well known with the Ordnance Survey, the Edgeworth family. Um, they're actually related to Maria Edgeworth. Her brother and her father were both heavily involved in this. Alexander Nemo. So the t- big, big names in Irish engineering of that period were all involved with this. Longfield was batting a little bit out of his weight because at this stage there had been a divergence in technical professions. Surveying and engineering had sort of parted ways. So some surveyors, like Longfield, tried to reinvent themselves as civil engineers, but they did have trouble competing with some of the, the bigger names operating both in Ireland and others who were brought in from Ireland from, from the UK. 
Um, we know that even people like uh, Abraham Lincoln, when he was a young man living in Illinois, he was for a brief period uh, a county surveyor where he lived and he studied Gibson's work. And there is a copy of Gibson's uh, uh manual in Thomas Jefferson's library in Monticello in Virginia. So there was that connection between both uh, both countries where the evolution of surveying happened at the same time due to the same reasons. But there were obvious differences. The United States was a massive space compared to Ireland. Um, for a lot of this period, it was several colonies, whereas Ireland was one political unit. And even with the forfeiture of land, you could argue that there are similarities between the seizure of land from the Gaelic and Catholic Irish and the Native Americans. Whereas with the Native Americans, they were considered, it was considered no man's land, a lot of their land, whereas at least the, the, the Native Irish were given some sort of recognition that they were only seizing their particular territory. They were legally recognised. But um, there are strange coincidences and parallels between both, both spheres. And finally, Finian, the bicentenary that is coming up in, in, in 2025, how do you think it will be remembered? Uh, because people do love maps and they, they like looking at these Ordnance Survey maps. So what do you think will happen? There's there's some great work. The, the, the OS 200 project, or, uh, check that out on Twitter if you can. I'm not involved with it, but it's they're doing fabulous work even identifying where some of Colby's camps were that when they started their surveying. I'm doing a, a day-by-day breakdown of the uh, Spring Rice Commission, the people who discussed why do we need an Ordnance Survey. And I know that the, both OSNI and the Ordnance Survey Ireland are working on, on it as well. And I think what it will bring is further public recognition and appreciation of this wonderful resource we all have access to. One point I really was very keen to make in the book was that the foundation of the Ordnance Survey was revolutionary. It was the great socialisation of cartographic information for this entire country. Before that, you had to hire a surveyor to produce a map. Now, anybody could walk into wherever they got them from the, from the Ordnance Survey HQ, purchase a map of anywhere in the country they wanted and see property boundaries, see the landscape themselves and did not have to commission a survey themselves to do it. And we are left with that legacy and it is something that has proven a bedrock throughout the 19th century and throughout all the strife of the early 20th century as well. Well, the book is called Land Surveying in Ireland, 1690 to 1830. The book is published in hardback by Four Courts Press. The author is Finian O'Kiona. And Finian, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, we'll be talking about the life and work of Agatha Christie, the queen of crime herself. And we'll be finding out about her remarkable legacy. So hope you can join us then. We've been talking history. Good night.